Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 193rd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit uh, organization engaging young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, uh, graphic novels, music videos, AI animated book trailers, you name it. Uh, today, we are joined by Dr. Helen Smith. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, use the comment section to type in your questions and we'll get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Helen Smith is a psychologist specializing in forensic issues and men's issues in Knoxville, Tennessee. She holds a PhD from the University of Tennessee and a master's degree from the New School of Social Research and uh, the City of University of New York with uh, more than 20 years of experience in private practice. Helen has written uh, for numerous publications and is the author of several books, including The Scarred Heart, Understanding and Identifying Kids Who Kill, and Men on Strike, Why Men Are Boycotting Marriage, Fatherhood, and the American Dream, and Why It Matters. Helen, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on today. I appreciate it. It's such so, an important issue. <laughs> it it really, really is. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I there's many reasons that I wanted to talk about this. Um, but of course, uh, Ayn Rand in her novels, um, she had these almost stylized, very masculine um, heroes and, and uh, feminine um uh, protagonists, and she she wrote about the topic of masculinity um, in in a way that you know was was very uh, kind of admiring of positive masculine qualities, and and we seem to have kind of gone uh, it completely in the opposite uh, direction. But I want to start uh, a little bit with you and your origin story and kind of what. Um, originally led you to become interested in both, um, you know, youth at risk as well as men's issues. Uh, the field of forensic psychology holds a special fascination in popular culture with series like CSI and true crime podcasts inspiring new generations to pursue the profession. So what inspired your early interest in the field? Um, well, first I want to say, I always like to bring out voices, like people talk about those voices that aren't heard. And I think we think it's sort of funny to think that men's voices aren't heard because we've always heard in the past, sometimes unfairly, that they're, they're always out in the forefront. And I don't think that's true. And I think it was the same at the time I wrote the book, um, The Scarred Heart, it was in the 90s. Um, and I think I really wanted the voices of those young kids who were being bullied or harassed at school to be brought forward. But before that, I think uh, just leading up to my interest in psychology, I had two things I wanted to be in life. One was to be an airplane pilot. But unfortunately, when I tried to join the Air Force, my eyes were really bad. And so I, I wear glasses. So I wasn't able to do that. But my other love was it was psychology. And I always wondered, even when I was a kid, like why people killed or what made people violent? Um, and I think that that really led me to really want to understand 
psychologically, just why people got so angry that they would kill someone. I guess I've always understood anger. Um, I guess I had a fair amount myself as a kid. I remember being always angry. I remember um, <laughs> I was libertarian from the start when I was in elementary school. I remember having a debate with another girl. She she told me I was lucky to be that I got an education at the school we went to. And I remember looking at her and being like, I'm being forced to be here against my will. <laughs> you know? I mean, looking back, I probably maybe I was that was wrong though. I was like, I wasn't happy being here. I'm being forced to come and and I don't, you know. So I think that um I think just the interest that I had, the understanding kind of of anger and what it was like to um feel angry and just the interest in why people why people were violent. Um and then as I got older, I took classes uh, in psychology at the University of Tennessee, and I started becoming more interested in that field. And then as I got more into it, my background is in both clinical and school psychology, and I worked with kids and adults, both in New York and then back here in Tennessee. So I think it was just having that base understanding and getting to see so many different kinds of clients that really um, helped me to really want to go into the forensic field. And when I say that, I think people misunderstand kind of what forensic psychology is. They think it's this glamorous thing like CSI. I, I once had this um, a, a woman who came, she was an assistant and she wanted, she thought it'd be fascinating. The job would be so interesting. I had a private practice at the time. And I remember she came in and she was like, this is really like we were working <laughs> with people who were drunk, who were mentally ill. Who I don't, I don't think it was a good time for her. I think people have this idea that it's really a fascinating field. CSI is more about criminal profiling. Um, forensic psychology is the intersection of law and psychology. So what we would do as a forensic psychologist might be to do a psychological assessment, say of somebody who is going to stand trial, were they, are they competent to stand trial? Are they, um, does a kid who is uh, 12 at the time they murdered, are they, can they be transferred to adult criminal court? You know, and so those were some of the issues that that I dealt with um, both in my private practice and then I worked in juvenile court for years. Um, I don't see that many patients anymore just because I kind of turned to um, in the early 2000s, I, I really wanted to be a filmmaker. So I sort of worked on films and I've started writing and, and kind of blogging and doing other things. And I think what mm -hmm. happened is um, when I was in New York, I started seeing more and more men and I just found that one of the first clients I had when I was an intern was a man and he was disabled and he was in a wheelchair and he was being abused and beaten by his wife. And I was in New York and it was a long time ago. So I tried to get help for him, like what resources are available for an abused man? And there really weren't any. And so it really got me thinking at that time that, wow, the, you know, a lot of men, this, this happens to men and they don't have any, any recourse. And so what are the things I could do or what, what do we as a society need to change to help those men who might be being abused in a situation because it's not as rare as people think. It's actually fairly common. Yeah, and we're going to, to get into that um, a little bit in talking about this book. But uh, when you first published this, The Scarred Heart, uh, it was back in 2000. Mm -hmm. Has the problem of violent kids improved or gotten worse in the intervening decades? Well, I think kind of both. I mean, I think when I wrote that book, it was actually in the 90s. It took me three or four years to write. It came out in 2000. And around the 90s, if you remember, it was the Columbine sort of uh, 
I think that kind of sparked and started a lot more. We had school shootings, obviously. They've been going on since the 70s and even before. We just didn't really know about it much because of, you know, there wasn't a lot of the media that we have now. Um, but I think that it's both the it's violence has increased in the sense there are more and more shootings, more and more mass killings, um, which get a lot of media attention. But when you just look at violence overall right now, I think overall some of the violence is actually down by juveniles, not necessarily by adults, but by juveniles. Um, it sort of ebbs and flows. Um, right now, I think we have had in 2022 some of the highest numbers of school shootings, and you're seeing that more and more. What's interesting, I think since COVID, since the kids have come back to school in 2023, I think we've seen a, a you know sort of a, a much, I mean, every time you watch the news now, it seems like it, some kid is is getting on and, and shooting up a school or... Um, you know, so I think I think while the overall level has declined some, I think um, that these horrible mass killings have have increased. Mm -hmm. um, how has the increased access and increased potency of drugs like marijuana impacted the mental health uh, and potential for violence among the young? Well, you know, I was going to start. I sort of thought of think about that. And I think, well, you know, you think of people who use marijuana as being more sedate, but, you know, they have done studies. Actually, there is one study they did, and they looked at Oregon, which was one of the first states to completely legalize marijuana. And they found that the juvenile uh, rate of crime did increase after they legalized marijuana. What happened is there were more property crimes, more burglaries, and more uh, aggressive assaults. So they did find some increase. And I think some of the potency and the increase in some of the drugs that that uh, people use, obviously you saw like the October 7th um, with Hamas, they were using kind of a um, methamphetamines to enhance that killing. So I think, uh, I think mainly people use those after they get to the point where they are going to kill and they use them to enhance that process. Um, do they mm -hmm. cause people to kill? You know, that's a that's an open-ended question. Uh, people also have concern about the psychotropic drugs. You know, they there have been a lot of studies looking at that. Has that increased kids' potential, you know, for mass shootings or killings at school? And, you know, the research doesn't really, it's, it's again, it's unclear. I, the New, York, the New York Times did a study. They saw that the um, psychotropic drugs actually um, people weren't taking them. And I found that in my own practice. I dealt with people who were potentially violent. And it seemed like when they would go off their medication is when the problem started because they would sort of be on a spiral and a roller coaster because they're, they're you know, taking the drug and then they suddenly stop, especially an antipsychotic. Got it. So uh, I was talking to our founder, David Kelly, um, a little while ago. He's very excited that you were coming on uh, the show because you first showed up on our radar uh, in 2008 in one of your columns, which popularized the slogan, Going Gull, as the Tea Party uh, movement was gathering strength. You posed the provocative question, quote, should productive people cut back on what they need, make less money, uh, and take it easy so that the government is starved of funds, or is there some other way of making a statement? Uh, with that, you hit on one of the central themes of Atlas Shrugged, which is the idea of withdrawing the sanction of the victim and refusing to let your productive energies uh, support your oppressor. So 
First, I'd like to ask uh, when and how did you discovered Ayn Rand and how her ideas uh, resonated with you? You know, I was trying to think about that. Like I said, I've been a libertarian from a young age, but I really didn't, I, I didn't really read much on Rand when I was young. Um, I think I was older. I, I'm going to say I was probably in my 20s or so, or 30s even. Um, but Atlas Shrugged, uh, it always resonated with me. And I think the thing I loved about Rand was her, un, like, like you were saying, she's so passionate kind of about the traits that men have. And I, I so appreciated that because I found that it was so rare sometimes for authors, particularly female authors, to be so effusive and, and to see those as great qualities. Um, but I, I think Alice Shrug would have been my favorite book, obviously, because I absolutely adored that um, idea. Because when I was growing up, I felt like I just I didn't understand why it was that people who were productive were always supposed to be out doing something. I always felt like I was a productive person and I felt like I didn't I guess I didn't understand why other people weren't. But then I also didn't understand why people um, felt that it was okay to take things from other people. I always felt like people owned themselves and it, it didn't seem fair. And I think Iran really brought those. It, it confirmed to me that the feelings I had and that the ideas I had, that somebody else took understood those in such a deep level. And so it really resonated her ideas. And I think her being a woman and just not using that. You never saw Ayn Rand so much being like, oh, I'm a woman. It was always like, these are my ideas. And that is what I appreciated so much about her. Yes. As an individualist, first and yes. foremost. Um, were, did you get any responses to that column? Did you see examples of people finding ways to, to go golf? I still I guess. have some of that. I actually put up that I was going to be on this show and I said, we're going to talk about going golf and some of the readers on my my husband's blog, instapundit.com, and they got on and said, yeah, I'm going golf myself right now. I've, yeah, um, and years ago, I, I wrote that, that column was in 2008. And yes, I got a lot of responses. I think I got a couple hundred responses and people... Um, I did a men's blog, like I had a blog called Dr. Helen, and that's where I wrote the this piece. And so it was really a, a blog for men to kind of come on to talk about their experiences in the world. So a lot of the responses were from, from men and women, but the responses ranged from things like, yeah, I'm going adult because I, you know, I... I'm going to quit my job. I'm 50. And instead of retiring in 10 years, I'm going to spend the next 10 years having to, you know doing something else or the other th way people went galt is they told me like they were saying like well don't join the military why should we as men put our lives on the line for people who don't care um other ways of going galt are are the marriage strike if you actually look at what's happening with men a lot of them um i'm not saying all men who aren't married are going galt but a lot of them said you know what i'm not doing it i'm not gonna i think the the legalities for men of marriage is such that they're supposed to produce and bring things to the marriage. And if it breaks up, a lot of the responsibility is on them. And I think as women, um, I think as it gets harder and harder uh, as a man to, I think any individual man can have an okay time, but I think it's extremely hard for some men when they do get divorced because the law is not on their side. And I think because of that, a lot of men feel that going vault is just bailing out uh, the other thing people well, do is just spend less money. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that there are, uh, you know, I, I, I thought actually a lot about this at the time, and I thought that if enough people did it at the same time, 
that there could be a way to kind of, uh, you know, shock the system and starve it of, of the funds that it, it needed to uh, to continue to uh, do all of this government overreach. Um, okay, in your book, Men on Strike, you write, quote, men uh, today feel very much like Rand's characters in Atlas, shrugged, uh, knowing that they can be exploited for their sense of duty, production, and just being male at any time. Uh, you argue that the trends of men avoiding um, fatherhood, marriage, withdrawing from the dating scene entirely, dropping out of college or leaving the workforce isn't just uh, a case of arrested development or Peter Pan syndrome, but rather a rational responses to a society in which they sense the deck is um, stacked against them. And I understand uh, just now you let me know that you're working on a, a follow-up book to uh, update this. So what are what are some examples of that? Uh, of men going on strike? Or, well, I think actually men, I think when I started my book in around 2012, a lot of the books were surrounding, you know, they would be like manning up, you know, Kay Hamowitz wrote a book manning up, or they'd be like, save the males, like save the whales or something. And they'd be talking about how men were just, they were these Peter Pan, they were under arrested development. And this is why they didn't want to man up and go out with women and marry them and do all the things they were supposed to do. But the men I actually talked to, and I'm not, you know, people say, you know, I talk directly to men and that's what the sort of new thing about men on strike was so many books look and they try to make they try to analyze the author's view. And I think what's so interesting is a psychologist, I think you have to ask men what they think. So when I'd say to men, like, what's your view? They'd say, well, you know, why should I get married? It's I'm if I get married, the woman is going to expect me to keep the house. Um, uh, if I don't do the type of work she likes, she's going to get angry um, that men, believe it or not, men are still expected. American society hasn't changed. In they have in terms of women, but in terms of men, our society expects, Pew Research did a study and they found that currently 72% of Americans think that to be a good husband or partner, you must provide the majority of the breadwinning in the, in the house. And they only feel this way about 32% of the women, that they even need to provide anything. So men are expected to provide the resources and to participate fully in the children and the home. And if the 50% chance that their marriage will break up, they then are left to put the bill for the, whatever alimony. Again, alimony is a little antiquated, but there's still the child support. Um, and they, I think that men feel like this is a really raw deal, right? The kids are not seen as the man's. They're kind of seen as the woman's today. Um, years ago, they actually... It, the children were more seen as the man's, which you would say isn't fair, but is it is it any more fair that today we have coverture, coverture being um, that term that means that um, men used to hold the cards in marriage, but now women hold that coverture. And it's, I think men just feel that it's a really bad situation. And why would they invest in that, especially legally? And the thing I find interesting is I think the younger guys are starting to pick up on this and understand this a lot more. The other thing men are doing, um, when I wrote my book, they were talking about someday men would only be 40% of college students. Well, today they are. Um, when I wrote my book, it was somewhere around, I think we had a, I think it was 45, 55, something like that in early, you know, mid, 
2010 or so, but now we see 60% women going to college, 40% men. Um, so fewer and fewer men are going to college. They're, I don't know that they're going on strike as much as they're finding other avenues. You might say they're going adult and they're saying, you know what? I even have family members. They, they look at this and they're like, I don't, a lot of guys don't want to go to school to, to college because they see it as, you know, they almost see it as, as a girl. It's almost like as a very feminized place that doesn't want them. It's a hostile work environment for them. And I think a lot of them are turning to the trade. Um, I have one family member going into welding um, who's 20. He decided not to go to college. Um, I talk to men all the time who are going into other sorts of fields. A lot of men try to go into engineering or some field. I even have men um, that I've been interviewing recently who told me that they're not really going golf, but they look into their jobs. One guy works at a hospital and he's like, okay, I'm going to go try just to work with men because I'm so afraid that if I, and then with a group of women, they might accuse me of something or, you know, I'll just be seen as this bad guy. And so I think men are finding their own way, whether that you want to call it going golf or just a different lifestyle that, that takes them out of the mainstream of what people expect of them. All right. I'm going to dip into some of these questions that were getting over the transom here, though I still have a lot of questions of my own. Um, on Facebook, Zachary Wren asks, are there any common trends in childhood development when there's only one parent versus two? I think maybe this could go back to that's yeah. Uh, yeah. Men on or that's hard. Um, yes, I think what we see now is that most kids, particularly boys, grow up without a father. And there's an excellent book called The Boy Crisis, which is written by Warren Farrell. It's a it's a great book looking at what happens when you just have, you know, a mom in the house and there's no dad. And I think particularly what we're seeing with boys, and that may be the trend of what's happening today, boys go through their, their whole uh, childhood now and their development is such that boys, we don't realize are much more sensitive to girls about their surroundings. And they um, do worse in school when families are broken up. If they don't have a dad in the home, um, they tend to turn to, you know, more criminal activities. Um, I think, and I'm not saying kids, but that they can be perfectly fine. I mean, that that's the majority of kids. But I do think boys do suffer, they found, even more greatly than girls and in different ways. I think boys don't understand boundaries as well as they used to. And that may, may be why we see more and more boys acting out in certain ways, because a father teaches boundaries. And we have all this research. People want to look at it, the social science research, and say, oh, well, women can do just as good a job alone. But I think having two parents, even if it's two same-sex parents, that still is a good thing. I think a child with two loving parents, it's, I think that's always going to be a bit more positive. I um, have a couple of questions here about uh, the juvenile court system, uh, which you've worked in juvenile justice. Uh, if you had to name one, two, or, or three top reforms, uh, how, would, how would you like to see the juvenile justice system changed both to help uh, prevent this from happening, but also to protect the public? I think that goes back to a mental health and not necessarily juvenile justice. What's happening mm -hmm. is all the kids that I would see in court had mental health issues, severe ones, where they should have been in a mental facility or get, you know, some type of uh, treatment and that treatment isn't provided anymore. So now that our juvenile facilities are simply holding cells for children. And a lot of times these kids and, you know, as 
a libertarian, you could probably really appreciate that a lot of times these kids didn't commit a crime. They're being locked up because they ran away from a, a bad home life or, you know, or they were mentally ill or, you know, and so the juvenile system, I would like to see the biggest reform would be to reform the mental health system. When I was young, when I was 18, I worked at Lakeshore, which was a mental health institute here in Tennessee. It was a huge institute. Um, all of the institutes around the country have been closed down and we don't have any community support. So I would like to see more community support for juveniles. I also would like to see more consequences. I've worked with kids who have committed very heinous crimes. One boy I had, he was... Um, I evaluated him, he was 12 years old and he had murdered someone. Um, this was in Nashville. And the thing is, is he had had some lower level crimes from eight on and there were no consequences. The juvenile system simply took him, said he's eight and returned him home. No consequences, nothing. So the boy would escalate to, you know, slashing tires, to stealing cars, to finally murdering someone. And by the time I saw him, he didn't understand. He didn't even understand that anything, you know, that he didn't understand why he was in a, even in jail. So I think that we need to um, focus more on prevention at younger and younger ages and to maybe enforce more consequences and not just turn kids loose with without anything. Uh, Candice Morena on Facebook asks, family court appears to have a strong bias against men. Is Do you think this is true? Is there a way to fix this? Yes, I absolutely think this is true. All the men I talk to, um, they, they uh, a lot of them do complain. Um, I talk to fathers all the time who they're getting divorced. They're unless the mother is so unfit she can't watch the kids. It doesn't seem to matter. The custody is usually, you know, pretty much given to her. Um, eighty percent. It's still I don't really understand this, but still eighty percent of the time women get the custody of children. Um, one of the things I tell men, um, I don't know, the family reform, yes, they need to be more open. And I think that is starting to turn a little bit in some states. They do have some better laws in family court, but I think it's getting harder. And it, it is still very hard. And there is definitely a lot of bias. Um, I would say what would need to change is uh, judges being more aware that fathers are parents. And we are asking men to be more and more invested. And they are, which is a great thing. But it's really hard to be a dad who's invested if the legal system isn't giving you that equal time and with your children. So I would say that time with children needs to be shared. And I, I think that some states are moving in that direction. So one of the discriminatory practices uh, you described that shocked me was that of certain airlines uh, refusing to seat unaccompanied minors next to men, which sends the message to all men that they're viewed as potential pedophiles. Uh, is that still happening? And what are some examples, uh, other examples of presumptions of male guilt by companies or institutions? Um, that was actually something happening. I wrote about that in my book. It was in 2012. There were a couple of airlines. Uh, one of them, I believe, was British. or One of them was... Um, Virgin Atlantic, and that was an Australian airline that um, they had moved a man, like a child was sitting next to him, and they would call the man up and, and kind of loudly announce he needed to move to the back of the plane, which was obviously humiliating for the, for a, a man uh, to think that you'd be a pedophile. And then a British Airways did the same thing um, to another man. 
And so the, uh, there was lawsuit, British Airways was sued, and then they changed their policy. So luckily, in the United States, supposedly there aren't any laws that are on the books. But the airlines at this point do have the right. And, and I think some of them, after that whole, the, all those incidents in 2012, did evaluate their policy. And now their policy is to move kids, I think, unaccompanied minors. They try to keep them maybe near the front of the plane where the flight attendant can watch them. And that way, an adult doesn't have to sit by them. So I think there have been some solutions. And I haven't heard about too many other cases. Um, other than that, uh, there's a lot of institutional bias against men that people aren't even aware of. Um, I think... Um, one of the ones people don't realize goes on is if a man wants a vasectomy, it isn't that the law forces the, says your wife has to sign off, but in a lot of doctor's offices, men can't get a vasectomy unless their spouse approves it, or a doctor will deny them that vasectomy and they'll have to go somewhere else. I mean, usually you can find somebody, but I even had military men who would tell me that they couldn't get a vasectomy until their wife signed off on it. Um, so I think people don't realize how much kind of institutional discrimination there is against men. Um, right. also, um, I mean, can you imagine if if, if a, like a, a woman wanted to get her tubes tied, but the doctors wouldn't, you know, perform it unless the husband <laughs> signed I, I off? I think people are much more likely to yell or to cause a scene if that happened to a woman. And when you look it up online, you have to really dig down to find the vasectomy stories because it's always about a woman. And I'm not saying that didn't happen. I mean, I'm sure there are doctors who might ask a woman, but I don't think we think about it in reverse that that's actually happening too. The other place where men are discriminated against, and this goes back to child development, more and more boys go through the day uh, early in life where they don't see a man. They might live with a single mom. They go to school. Only 8% of kindergarten teachers are men. So in 78% of high, I believe high school or overall. So most of the time a boy isn't going to be around a man. And the main reason men don't want to become like people always say, oh, men don't want to be teachers. It's just not prestigious enough. Well, no, I talked to lots of guys who would love to do that kind of work, but they are viewed, they've done studies and they find they are viewed um, as pedophiles or viewed, people are like, why are they wanting to be like a teacher of young children? Um, and they are less likely to be hired and more likely to be discriminated against. I've even seen this myself firsthand, you know, where you'll see a male teacher and the other female teachers will be bitching or, you know, saying things about, sorry, um, will be saying things about the man, like he's not working hard enough. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. And I thought, well, if it was a woman, would they really be openly telling a parent, somebody like this person isn't working? They'll just openly do that about a man. So I think there are a lot of areas of a man kind of goes, um, and you don't even see that today. Like I'll be talking just to a woman or something and women feel very free to badmouth a man at any time. And in ways that you think there's no way they would say that about a, a woman. I think it's just open season. Um, so one of the talks I give to student groups is Girls Gone Woke, Why Young Women Need Ayn Rand. And in it, I talk about this deepening ideological divide among uh, young people with twice as many 12th grade boys identifying as conservative versus progressive. Uh, only 13% of 12th grade boys identify as on the left, but the situation more than flips when it comes to 12th grade girls with only 12% of 12th grade girls identifying as conservative, which you, know, you can use as a, a bookmark, if you will, for libertarian, you know, whatever flavor of not on the left. Mm -hmm. 
I have had my own theories uh, about this, but I now that I have the opportunity to talk to somebody who's researched uh, and written extensively about young people and also men's issues, what do you think might be driving the polarization? I want to hear your theory, but I'm going to first tell you a little bit about what I think, and then I would like to hear what you think. Um, I think girls have been turning left for a long time. I think it is extremely popular. I think girls are very much into fads. We see that with influencers, with more and more girls obviously using social media, with Instagram, with all of those things. But it came even before that. I think girls, um, they are they have somewhat of a more, I'm going to say, fashion herd mentality. I think they don't believe in, in individual rights as much. And so I believe that, and, and it's just a it is actually true. I did a, a, a paper, I remember in graduate school, looking at moral development and women, when you look at the stages, like it, women didn't believe in as much about individual rights. So I think some of it starts there. And some of it, I think a lot of it obviously is social media and the fact that indoctrinating these women with Facebook, and I know you've had Greg Lukian up on the show and talking about all of those things of the coddling of the American mind, this whole woke mentality, and I know a lot of people like Jonathan Haidt, um, who is a psychologist, I believe, oh, he used to be at Virginia, but he's a social psychologist and he really thinks it's the iPhone in 2012, but all of this started way before that. So I think it has to do with um, media from TV to, you get a lot of kudos, you get a lot of, when you are a victim, the whole Democratic Party is about victim status. And when you are a victim, it's just so much easier if you're a woman. What do you get out of it? If you're a guy and you start crying and complaining, you are seen as a loser. You'll get nowhere. You won't get a date. You'll be called names. With women, when people are have a victim mentality for a girl, people come to your aid. Victim Being a girl who's a victim is power. It's power. It's like being beautiful. It is a powerful aphrodisiac. And I think more and more women, it does give them power. It gives them the power that said, you know, if people are victims, then they're going to get what they want. Um, yeah. So I think girls turn to that. And there's also this anti-male mentality that's really been going on, honestly, since the 60s, 70s. I mean, that has been progressing on and on. So I think that women are simultaneously taught that men are no good, toxic masculinity, you don't want to be like them, and you certainly don't want to be a conservative. So I, just, I think for women, it's a more comfortable place to be. Um, unfortunately, now what's happening, like you said, the dating pool, and I, I'm talking to men for my new book, and all of the men I talk to, most of them report being right-leaning, and that it's very hard to find a date. And when they do go out with a woman, most of them are more accepting of a liberal woman. They're like, oh, well, that would be okay, but she doesn't like any of my ideas. If I say anything, she starts yelling. So I think a lot of guys just, they don't want to, it's a hard we're making it so it's hard. Don't want to be. Don't want to be yelled at. <laughs> I, oh yeah, no. I, I mean, most that men, would it's... kind of be a buzzkill. Yeah. So what's um, your theory? Well, I have uh, a a couple of them. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, given that th there's like this hierarchy of uh, victimhood status, you know, the privilege walks, like you know, in in, in the privilege walks. It'll be the 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 white men, but they're still going to be uh, you know behind the white women. So they really are you know at the at the uh, bottom of the totem pole. Um, and so uh, being 
demonized um, and being told that you're no good. Uh, and then you might get wind of like a Jordan Peterson or somebody else who uh, has a, a whole different way of thinking about things. And even if you were raised to think that that was taboo or stupid, uh, you you really on a very personal level want to know. So, um, but, but I also think that there is uh, Roe versus Wade and, um, you know, the, the abortion issue. I, I think that uh, also there's hormones and um, estrogen at uh, the, the 12th grade level that, uh, you know, girls might feel like, oh, well, that, these are the policies of, of kindness and helping and uh, caring and compassion. Of course, you know, nothing could be farther from the truth or the policies of uh, coercion and, and theft. Um, but uh, but I can see that might be a possibility as well. But I, I also do put stock in um, in the arguments that Lukiana lays out that uh, by overprotecting kids, denying them the ability to uh, gain confidence um, that they are resilient and can overcome um, that I, I think that the girls might be even more susceptible to that, that to the idea. They are, and they have a very internal locus or external locus of control. Girls tend to be more externally, you know, the, I mean, I think the boys, when you look at it, and I know um, Jonathan Hay, the social psychologist, broke it down and looking at liberal girls. And the thing that's interesting is most of the liberal girls said that 50% of the time, 50% of liberal girls have been diagnosed with a mental illness by an actual doctor or psychologist. That's a lot of, of these girls. And at the same time, these they have um, they feel very self-derogatory about themselves. They feel badly. I can't, you know, when when uh, they I can't do anything. I'm not good. I'm not the captain of my own ship. And I think if anything, Ayn Rand would appreciate being that, you know, understanding that you're the captain of your own ship. Can you can you can do things in the world? And I think. I think women ultimately, some of them don't really believe that. So I think they mm -hmm. use this victimhood as a, as a, almost like a, a substitute because you would have to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to do that. And I am going to be the master of myself. And I think it goes back to people are afraid of freedom. People ultimately, I don't know if you've ever read the book Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm, the psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. But he talks about how people are so afraid that it produces anxiety and fear. And I think that's what a lot of girls have. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to generalize too much. Obviously, women, you know, I mean, we're also into individual rights and strength and, and you know, but I mean, as a whole, when you look at it, I think that women are much more afraid to be who they are or to stand up or to be against the herd. And I do think you know, being a victim or being part of woke politics is a way to fit in, in a way that yeah, boys I mean, can't. I, th I think what you mentioned about this being sort of a, a contagion and an infection and women generally, especially as they're in school growing up, uh, being even more concerned about fitting in, being even more concerned about not standing so that, you know, let's say that sometime in the mythical past, it was uh, 12th grade girls were 50-50 um, conservative and on the left. And then it became, you know, 55-45 and then it's 60. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, we're in the minority. Yeah. <laughs> we got to make sure that we're not 
you know, the ones that people are pointing at. girls have always been somewhat more liberal than than men or women are somewhat more because there's the whole, you know, women view themselves as more nurturing, more kind, that kind of thing. But it actually is almost the opposite. The men I meet, they do things like on a daily basis. I guess that's what, what fascinates me so much about men is they don't say a word. And a lot of times they're out there, like you watch them and they're out there building something or planting plants around your, you know, your house or construction, or, you know, they're just out quietly doing things or police officers or, you know, they, they do things. And I think that that's a way of nurturing. That's a way of, of helping too. But I think people don't see the things that men do as a kind or nurturing. For example, the only way women or the media think that it's, you know, if men are, um, doing housework or watching kids, that's good. But if they're driving you around or they are doing yard work or fixing your car, that's not good. You know, it's like people make a decision about what men should or shouldn't do and what's good and what's bad. And I just think that we have to appreciate men for those things that they they do that are important also. So uh, I mentioned abortion um, and, and reproductive freedom. And we were talking about the, the political dichotomy between uh, male and female 12th grade kids. Uh, so uh, obviously on a lot of women's voters' minds uh, in these days is going to be uh, abortion now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Um, but the issue of male reproductive rights uh, barely gets any attention. And, you know, given that it is women who must carry a fetus to term if they're denied the right to seek abortion. I do think it's an important distinction, but uh, talk a little bit about paternity fraud and other ways um, in which men are being coerced uh, into bearing responsibility for children they did not consent to conceive because it was pretty eye-opening. Well, I'd first like to say that men have to use their bodies in ways all the time. We force men to, you know, conscription. We tell men they have to go to war. They have to sign up. I mean, right now, maybe they don't have to go, but we do force men and their bodies in all kinds of ways that nobody really cares about. In addition to that, I'd also like to add that for 18 years, if this woman decides to carry the fetus to term, she makes that decision. If she does, then that means that the man is forced, if he doesn't want the child, to pay for that child for 18 years or go to jail. So it isn't like men, you know, they have to use their body for 18 years. It isn't like we don't use men's bodies in the same, in in, in a different kind of way. Um, but as far as paternity fraud, um, people give estimates about it. It's fairly common. Um, there have been estimates of say 5%. Paternity fraud is basically when a, when a child isn't the man's. Like in other words, if a woman has a child, he finds out it's not his. Um, so essentially they call them dupe dads. I mean, a dad who finds out, you know, the kid isn't his there, that ranges between about five and 30% of the time. And of course, with the new DNA testing that we have so much, we're, I think they're finding there's more and more cases of that. Um, but what we have now is if a man finds out a child isn't his, he still has to pay child support, particularly if he's married, there's what's called presumptive paternity. And if a man's married, it doesn't matter if the woman had five affairs down the street, that child is his. And he must pay for it, no matter how angry, no matter how frustrated, no matter if he wants a divorce, that he must pay for that child. Um, so I think that when people talk about women's rights, uh, reproductive rights, I always look at them and I say, you name me, name me three reproductive rights a man has. I, I've never had anybody name one. Men don't really have any reproductive rights. I mean, 
I hear what you're saying. I understand. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not, you know, I, I think that yes, women, obviously they do carry the fetus. Obviously we have other issues there, but it isn't like men shouldn't be allowed to participate. Um, there are a lot of statutes um, in different places like Georgia. Uh, there was a guy, Carnell Smith, that I interviewed for my book and Mr. Smith um, found out his eight-year-old daughter wasn't his. He was divorced um, or it was his girlfriend that had the child. He didn't want to pay child support anymore. So this isn't my kid. And the court said, no, you have to pay. And so he literally was like a one-man show. He went all the way to the Georgia Supreme Court and got that overturned. And now I think there, um, there is there, a lot of states will have a time limit, like you have three months to a year to establish paternity or not. Um, but he got it where they increased it to where if you had, say, an eight-year-old child, you could still fight not to pay that child support. So this is a, a great question um, from Facebook. I was thinking about this too. Uh, Alan Thomason asks, why do you think young men are lost without many role models and turn to extremes like Andrew Tate. Are you familiar with Andrew Tate? Okay. Mm -hmm. And then just, yeah, talk a little bit about the, the, the pickup artist type, uh, you know, fads out there and, and, and why they're, they're so popular. Well, I mean, she sort of hit on it. The men don't have any role models. Nobody teaches them anything anymore. And they, they're basically lost. In fact, I think, um, I saw recently that that boys are actually turning to G, uh, chat GP to sort of find out about dating because they really don't understand. So if they have no role model, nobody to really talk to them about how to date or do anything. I don't think Andrew Tate's a great example, but I have to turn to someone like Jordan Peterson, who obviously is a psychologist. He understands the psychology of boys and men and what they need and want. And I think that those are those ideas are not bad things. I also think women miss, underestimate how hard it is. Um, here's an example. Women, the majority of women, say you go to a dating app, the majority of women find most men undateable. In the past, young men might have been able to find somebody. Most women wanted a husband. Nowadays, women don't need a husband, right? They can, which is good. They can make their own money. They don't need that. But at the same time, men feel that they don't really have a place. And women more and more, especially the younger women, are expecting men, like they find the men undateable. And you you're like, well, how are the men undateable? undateable? Well, it turns out, you know, most women want a man uh, six feet and up. Um, most women want a man who makes money or has a job. All of those things are getting more and more difficult for men. And I think those men who have, a, say you have just a regular job and you're five, eight, those men tell me, you know, it's really hard for them. I've talked to men who look fabulous, they're great guys and everything, and it's still hard for them to get a date if they're short. So I think women's standards somehow have increased. And at the same time, the guy's level of education, those other things that they want have decreased. So there's sort of a mismatch. I think that seems to be picking up as the men get older, they do become more desirable, which is not great because, you know, um, the men get older and they they date down into the 20s and 30s. But I think that dynamic kind of changes because I talk to older women who sort of have the same problem. They always say like older men don't really want me because I'm older. So I think there's sort of a mismatch. But I also, why do men, I mean, I think they turn to those men because they're looking for some kind of help and um, they're not going to get it from reading about how to be a nice guy. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, Instagram, Isabel Mariana. I notice uh, she's on Instagram. I notice that many men look for relationships with women overseas where masculinity is still valued um, as I'm sure also a green card might be, but anyway, uh, <laughs> rather than date people in the United States. Have you seen this? <laughs> they have a name for it. I forget what it is, but it's like uh, passport bros, passport bros, they call them. So these passport bros do, you know, they want to find, uh, go overseas and find a woman because they say they're more feminine. Um, that doesn't always work out so well. Some of the men, uh, you know, they go over, they get the, the women, the women come back here and they can still have the same issues. But I do think it goes to the issue of respect. I think American men do not feel respected. That is the one thing in my book that I found out and that I'm talking to men about now, the biggest thing they talk about is respect, that they do not feel respected by American women. And I think they're even in their mind, whether true or not, they feel that these women overseas do respect them um, and, and feel that um, I think it's important for men to show that, you know, that they are masculine. And I think that they want somebody who isn't going to think that that's toxic, so. Uh, you titled the final chapter of your book, Fighting Back, Going Galt, or Both. What are some of the solutions and suggestions for changing the culture um, so that men don't miss out on opportunities to thrive in education, lead productive lives and uh, fulfilling lives that include family and so that the rest of us don't miss out on their contributions and company. Well, I think your last question, the last question sort of hit on it. I think having respect for men, I think having that respect shows that you appreciate those things that they do. You don't set men up for failure. For example, you know, even as young, a young boy, we want to set men up for success, just like we do women. And I think we've thought so, so much about what women need and what women, you know, and and, you know, for good reason, because before women were, you know, needed those things. But I think now we're seeing that that boys also, we need to sort of get that back to the middle. So I think I think young boys having those role models so that it doesn't become Andrew Tate, it becomes maybe uh, a male role model, Get a, whether that be a teacher. So I think we need to respect more men who go into the field, not see them as perverts, but, you know, ask them, you know, how do we... How do we make education and those sorts of uh, teaching and that kind of thing attractive to men? Um, what are, um, and I think just understanding men and listening. I think we don't do a good job of listening because women, uh, many times when I talk to women, they talk about themselves or what they need, but they don't stop and think about what men need sometimes. And I think that we need, we also need to look at these schools from colleges to, you know, the elementary schools, they are very feminized. We do not have a classroom that is really made up for boys, the classrooms and, and, and an active girl either. But if, if somebody is very active, um, so many boys now are put on, you know, Ritalin or other medications for ADHD because they can't sit still, but that's just sometimes called a regular boy. And it is always the case the child needs to be medicated. So I, I think we really need to get back to, hey, boys are people too, they're human beings. And how do we make uh, the school systems and the culture uh, positive for, for both sexes? Because we're both, we're all missing out. Believe me, I talk to women too, and I hear more complaints from women. Women aren't happy. You look at the, the data and you see that women aren't happy with this dating situation. They don't, 
they want a guy. And what, I think because everybody's so afraid, it leaves such great women out in the cold too. I see great women every day saying like, why, you know, why isn't there a guy out there for me? And that's a shame because I think that we've alienated so many men in the culture that the men just, I think that a lot of them have just given up. And I think also look outside the box. If you're looking for a man, don't, I think that six foot man making a certain amount of money, there's, there's other people out there. And sometimes you have to kind of look past. Um, superficial qualities. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, um, you talked uh, right before we jumped on about the interviews that you're doing for an updated version of um, Men on Strike and thinking about what's happened in the intervening years since you published the book. And of course, one of the things that's happened is this whole explosion of trans mania. Um, and I've had uh, J. Michael Bailey, uh, and uh, he's the author of The Man Who Would Be Queen, who's who's an academic researcher who studied uh, gender dysphoria, which has historically been just a very, very tiny uh, minority of very young males who were confused about their gender uh, and if who uh, left to their own devices, at least uh, this researcher found, would tend to grow up to become uh, well-adjusted homosexual men um, rather than continuing to think that they were you know, in the wrong body or something like that. Now, of course, uh, boys identifying as girls, that's gone up, but nothing like the huge um, explosion of uh, young women uh, identifying as boys. So I guess like it kind of begs the question, if uh, things are so bad for boys, why do so many young girls want to become them? I don't think they want to become them. I think they're still a girl becoming, they're still basically a girl who wants to be a boy. And I think the idea for them is to be something different today. It is about being something different. If you're just a plain girl, that's not good enough. And I think, again, it kind of goes back to, I'm not saying everybody is, it's a fad for all girls, because I think there's generally some people who are unhappy in, in their, you know, in their body and that, this is very maybe freeing for them, but at the same time, there are also girls who just the trans movement, I think it sort of swept everybody up again. It could be a fad. Um, if it's so great to be, you know, Nora Vincent uh, was an author and she wrote a book called Self-Made Man in 2008, where she dressed up like a man and lived for a man for a year. And she said it was the hardest experience of her life. She said, people don't care about you emotionally. She went out on dates where they denigrated men. She said going to work was was very difficult because you had to have this bravado that as a woman, you just you just didn't have to have. And so I think that these girls aren't really living as a guy. And 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 some of them are. I mean, I remember, wasn't it Chaz Bono, Sonny and Cher's uh, was a daughter who uh, transitioned mm -hmm. to being male. And he said when he was with Dancing with the Stars that he was discriminated against for being a man. So I don't know that men have it so good. I think that the women, um, and, and maybe they perceive, you know, everybody tells you that these men are so privileged and it's such a great life, but it'd be interesting to find out what they really think as time goes on. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that is, it's like, uh, wait a second. I thought yeah. I was, you know, going to be. Yeah, I thought I was going to have a great time. Bruce, what happened to well. my male privilege now that I'm, you know, transitioned? So. Well, if there's such male privilege and men are so happy, why are all the majority of the 50,000 people that killed themselves last year men? I mean, is it such a great life? I don't know. So uh, 
we are just in our closing uh, few minutes of um, this wonderful, fascinating interview. Uh, Helen, anything that you didn't get the chance to cover that uh, you'd like to end with or talk about uh, your, your next book? Um, so I'm working on a book now. It's going to be with Encounter Books, the same publisher I had for Men on Strike. And um, it is going to be called tentatively the Men's Center. It's uh, men speak out on dating, marriage, and life in 21st century America. So I'm just doing interviews with men across the country. Um, so uh, that should hopefully be out later this year. But if there's any any men out there who'd like to be interviewed, I do like an hour interviews with people. Um, I don't blog right now, but people can reach me on my Facebook page at Facebook. Uh, you can just Helen Smith PhD. If you go there, you can message me. Um, if you want to see um, my other book, uh, Men on Strike, of course, is at Amazon, but you can also download a free copy of The Scarred Heart. And that is at uh, an old website I started in the late 90s. So The Scarred Heart, you can get for free. And that is at violentkids.com. But if you just Google The Scarred Heart, it should pop up and you can, there's a place on my website to download that for free if you want to read it. And it, again, it's over 20 years old, but it's just interviews with kids who have killed and who are violent. You know, Helen, I think the next book after The Men's Center should be a beauty book. Because this oh, is you. A beauty book. 10 years ago, this is you. Oh, that book, that was me. Ago. Like, I think I was, um, no, that that book was written, that was in 1997. That book was written a long time ago. I wrote The Scar, so that book is 10 years old. And the other book is literally, I wrote that in 97. And it okay. came out. And look at how beautiful you are today. So, Aww. well, thank <laughs> you. Uh, ditto. All right, my dear. Well, uh, please give my regards to um, Glenn. And uh, when you guys are next out on this coast, I look forward to uh, hosting a, a dinner party or a new book for you. So, thank thank you. you. And I want to thank everybody else who uh, showed up today. Thanks for all of your great questions. I know you if you're primarily following the Atlas Society on social media, uh, you might just think of us as some kind of, you know, content provider, but we're actually a nonprofit and, and our work, work is engaging young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand. So if you haven't yet donated to the Atlas Society, please go over to atlassociety.org forward slash donate and whatever size donation uh, will be matched by our very generous board. Uh, next week, I've got the week off because um, Atlas Society senior scholar Stephen Hicks and Richard Salzman will host a special webinar titled, uh, Is the Naturalistic Fall Fallacy um, a Fallacy? The Case of Economics. So hope to see you then. Thank you. <laughs>